Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. This morning marks the second Sunday in Advent, and we're in a sermon series titled The Joyful Mysteries, which is exploring a pattern of creativity in the life of Mary that's highlighted in the rosary. Last Sunday, we observed Mary's Annunciation. Mary is visited by a divine messenger who declares, you will be with child, to which Mary considered and ultimately surrendered. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And in that sermon, we were encouraged to, like Mary, slow our lives enough to notice those divine annunciations that come our way so that we might thoughtfully consider and potentially respond yes. Yes to those unique and personal invitations for us to create, for us to make art with our very own lives. And as a reminder, art isn't just the work of poets and painters and sculptors. Art is the expression or application of any creative skill. Art is the branch of creative activity, which is to say art can be, depending on how we look at it, the very thing that fills our lives as we thoughtfully create. A moment, a conversation, a meal, a graph, a meeting, a day, a life. As we grow, we begin to observe the world around us. We begin to take in with critical analysis life. And early on, I mean really, really early on, we begin to notice that we are different from others. And on the one hand, this is simply differentiation, right? There is me in the world, and there are others in the world who are not me. But on the other hand, differentiation can quickly become comparison, can't it? With a particular focus on all that we are not. And to be clear, this is very human. Evolutionary theory explains that comparison, which is really more like an existential experience of inferiority, <laughs> right? Comparison is a biological trait steeped in fear that has kept our lineage alive for millennia. For example, our ancestors saw someone who was stronger. It roused in them a kind of fear, which is really manifested as inferiority and our ancestors were compelled to get stronger. Or our ancestors saw someone who lived in a place, a space that appeared to be extra safe, and, and for our ancestors it aroused a kind of fear which manifested more as inferiority, and they were compelled to get their own extra safe space. Or our ancestors saw someone whose crops were more abundant than theirs. It aroused fear, which was manifested more as inferiority, and they were compelled to produce more. More, more, always 
more. And the more was inciting, incited by noticing another person with gifts, traits, or resources that our ancestors did not have, but through which they were compelled to get in order to survive. Unfortunately, like many of our evolutionary traits today, our propensity toward fear and that sense of inferiority based on comparison is unnecessary for survival. We don't actually need it today. Our lives aren't in peril or danger. But it's deep in our bones, isn't it? It's deep in our bones. That person is more beautiful. Can you feel it? That friend has a really great partner. Can you feel it? That neighbor has a perfect family, especially on Instagram. (laughs) Can you feel it? That cousin has a prestigious degree and high-paying job. That guy is funnier, friendlier, happier, fuller than me. And today, we don't even need to go out into the world to feel bad about ourselves, right? We don't even have to go out. We can just pull out that tiny little phone that we pay so much money for and open that app that we choose to sign up for and begin scrolling, right? Let the comparison, fear, and inferiority begin. (laughs) Swipe. Swipe, swipe. But please don't feel shame and guilt. This is very normal. It's actually deeply human. It's in our bones and this way of being has kept our lineage alive for millennia. And yet today in 2023, comparison, fear, and inferiority are no longer necessary to keep us alive. But to be sure these, and to be sure these traits do not lead to human flourishing. Oh, they just don't. Comparison a consideration or estimation of the similarities or dissimilarities between two things or people. Comparison. Fear. An unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous. Fear attached to comparison is a very common human experience. And inferiority, it's kind of like the grand trifecta. The condition of feeling lower in status or quality than another or others. What a terrible place to live from. And yet many of us get stuck in this very human, very debilitating loop again and again and again. What are we to do? Well, I think a first step is to decide, to consciously decide that comparison and fear and inferiority are places that we do not wish to dwell. Experiences, feelings, thoughts that we wish to not entertain. And based on this decision, then we can begin to build out some intentional practices for when we notice those things rising up inside of us so that old neural pathways begin to slow and new neural pathways begin to grow. But how do we do that? It's an important work, but how do we do it? In last week's reading from the New Testament, we witnessed Mary surrender to Gabriel's Annunciation. In that reading, Gabriel told Mary that her relative Elizabeth was six months pregnant. And in this morning's reading from the New Testament, we witness Mary's response to the news that Elizabeth is pregnant, which reads, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This is a section of Mary's story that doesn't get a lot of airtime during the seasons of Advent and Christmas. We usually just blow right through this, but it's a truly remarkable section of Mary's story. 
Mary surrenders to her annunciation, her own personal unique annunciation. She's told that her relative Elizabeth is six months pregnant, and we read that she sets out with haste. In the Greek, spude. Uh, Spude can be translated as haste or speed or zeal or pursuit or exertion. And so hearing that her relative Elizabeth is six months pregnant, Mary with haste, speed, zeal, pursuit, exertion, travels 80 to 100 miles over a three to four day period to pay her relative a visit. It's incredible. Now, theologians debate this remarkable journey. Brown suggests that Mary left so quickly because she didn't want everybody to see that she was pregnant and unwed. But that doesn't make sense because she comes back three months later when she would look very pregnant and still be unwed. And then there's that old hospiter theologian. He suggests that pregnant women shouldn't move with haste. So he translates spude as with serious intent, (laughs) which is ridiculous. The most common interpretation for this part of the story is that Mary's instant departure, her speedy travel, reflect her belief in and her excitement about what God is doing in the world, in her own life and in the life of her relative. And that's the very thing that stood out to me more and more as I've engaged in this particular meditation of the rosary uh, called the Joyful Mysteries. Right? There's this visitation, and then there's this excitement about that which God is doing in the lives of others the Annunciation and the Visitation. And this interpretation of being excited about the lives of others accords with my own experiences and the experiences that I have found in your lives as well. It's all grounded, I think, in the stories that we live within. Stories we live within. The story that most of us live within without really thinking about it because it's just in our bones is a story of survival passed down through the generations in our evolutionary DNA. In this story of survival, other people are transformed into mirrors of comparison that reflect our shortcomings and inadequacies, which then rouse fear and inferiority. And so in this story of survival, when we hear of that relative's pregnancy or that stranger's vacation or that friend's promotion or that person's goodness, whatever that person's goodness is, we can easily become fixated on what we are not and what we do not have. (sighs) But what a terrible place to live. It's a story that makes us feel bad about ourselves. It's a story that causes us to long for or to strive after more. And even if we do achieve more, there's always that next person who is something that we aren't or who has something that we don't. And then to top it all off, it's a story that makes us incapable of genuinely celebrating the full lives of others because it's nearly impossible to celebrate a mirror that reflects our own shortcomings. And so we end up abiding within a pattern that moves like this. I'm afraid that I won't survive. I'm compelled to survive by keeping up with her, him, them. And as soon as I catch up, if I catch up, there is always more. Always. And if we tease out the implications of this story just a little further, this story of survival insists that it's never enough, which is to say we're never enough. It's a story of survival that insists others set the bar for the way in which our unique and personal lives should look. 
And finally, the story of survival ignores a serious reality, which is we cannot be and do everything that we see everybody being and doing. We can't. In fact, the more of anything that we try to be or try to do results in a diminishing of other ways of being or doing, for truly every life is inextricably connected and constrained by limitation. That's what a life is. I once was talking to a young parent, and she held out her arms, and she said, I'm only this wide in the world. (laughs) I love that realization of limitation. How much can you wrap your arms around? Truly. There's only so much that any person can do or become in one lifetime. And yet for many of us, the story of survival and the pattern that it sets for our lives just spins and spins and spins. Fear, comparison, inferiority. Over and over and over again. As other humans are transformed into mirrors reflecting everything that we are not. But you see, it doesn't have to be this way. There are other stories to consider abiding within such as the stories found in the Joyful Mysteries. Last week we heard a story about a life in which divine enunciations are abundant and personal. What if we exist in a world where divine enunciations are abundant and personal? Well, then, like Mary, we would slow down to try and intentionally hear these messages for ourselves. Like Mary, we would thoughtfully consider what it is that we're being invited to make with our lives today. And like Mary, we might even come to those special places where we whisper those delicious words, I surrender. I will make that. Then, as we're noticing in this morning's story about Mary's visitation, when we hear about Elizabeth's good fortune, whoever that is, whatever it is, our immediate response is surprisingly no longer fear comparison or inferiority because filled with our own creative children to give birth to today, we're freed to make haste to celebrate and to support the full lives of others. Is this making sense? Here's an example. In this morning's reading from the Hebrew scriptures, we have that sneaky blessing-stealing brother, Jacob. He's returning to his homeland and he is freaked out about the thought of meeting Esau. He's just freaked out about it. For years, he's been thinking back upon his betrayal and wondering what a future encounter might look like. And so when he decides to return home, he does so very methodically. He splits his family and his possessions into different kinds of groups. And as each group approaches Esau, Jacob at the very front begins to bow again and again and again and again. And then he has each group behind him approach Esau and bow again and again and again and again. Confused, Esau asks, what is all of this? (laughs) To which Jacob replies, I'm hoping to find favor with you. To which Esau exclaims, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. That's a really different place to live a life from. You see, for years, Jacob had been stuck in that old story of survival, which is what led him to try and steal his brother's blessing in the first place. And he's been fixated on that moment ever since. All the while, Esau, well, Esau's just moved on. Esau has just been living his life. And rather than being consumed by what Jacob took, by what his brother has, rather than busying himself with all that Jacob achieved, Esau simply wonderfully, beautifully lived his life. And he accepted that which his own life produced. 
And so when Jacob came home still living out of that story of survival, Esau was confused. Settle in his life, the story tells us that Esau ran to Jacob, embraced Jacob, and hung on his neck while weeping and kissing Jacob. Isn't that beautiful? And I think it's about more than an entire life like Esau's. I think it actually can also come down to a day or to a moment. Like when I slow down enough to think well about what I'm feeling called to make today, right? Like sometimes I have no agency over my day. Like my kid gets in some kind of problem and I just have to go. Uh, Or there's this meeting that I signed up for weeks ago and I just have to be there. But even within these things that life brings upon us, there are still ways to slow and to pause and to ponder, what might I create in this moment that is my only moment about which is to fill my life? So what am I feeling called to make in that conversation or meeting or email or interaction? And when I pause to wonder about that and I find some movement in my heart about what I might make, Well, then when I encounter somebody whose day is different, I find myself less capable of comparison or fear or inferiority because like Esau, I have settled into the life that is mine, the moment that is mine. But when I'm not settled in the life that is mine, like when I'm zipping from thing to thing or led by the beeping and buzzing on my phone or robotically going through my day without considering what I'm being invited to make, Well, it's then that engagement with others has a different kind of effect on me. I'm certainly not making haste to celebrate Elizabeth's in my life. Nor am I running to the Jacobs to embrace them and hang on their neck while kissing and weeping, celebrating their life. Are these examples helpful? Filled with our own creative children to give birth to today we are freed to make haste to celebrate and to support the full lives of others. And this is the embodiment of a very different story. Rather than fear, comparison, inferiority, over and over again, the joyful mysteries invite us into a world impregnated with a personal possibility of things to make with our own lives today. Our lives today. And through this sense of divine purpose, our lives then are freed to celebrate and to support the fullness of others. Less comparison, more celebration. How good would that be? Less fear and more joy. Less inferiority and more solidarity as we rejoice in the artistic expressions that we humans get to curate with our very own lives. And for me, this has become a helpful framework through which I can better understand myself, right? Myself. Early in the sermon, I said that a first step toward freedom from this story of survival is to decide that comparison, fear, inferiority are not the kinds of places that we wish to dwell. And based on this decision, then, we can allow these moments to rework some of our neural pathways. With this in mind, here's a practice to consider using to rework these old neural pathways of fear, comparison, and inferiority. Rather than allowing the lives of others to function as a mirror that reflects absence in our lives, what if our thoughts and feelings about others, like those thoughts and feelings that we have, what if we were to allow them to function as a witness to the story that we're telling about ourselves? A witness to the story that we're telling about ourselves. Like what if fear, comparison, and inferiority could become kindred friends who helped us to thoughtfully reflect on our own 
storytelling. Here's what I mean. We're just going through our day when all of a sudden we interact with someone through social media or email or a brief conversation and we hear about that relative's pregnancy or that friend's promotion or that stranger's vacation or that person's goodness, whatever it is. And subtly, subtly, or perhaps more like a a jackhammer, (laughs) we notice fear or comparison or that sense of inferiority begin to rise up inside of us. What if? What if, rather than abiding within a story of survival, we begin to think of fear, comparison, and inferiority as our friends, illuminating something in us, which is what? Well, what if it's our need for divine annunciations for our own lives? Our need for divine annunciation, because that, I think, is what it is. That, I think, is the divine invitation of those moments of fear or comparison or of inferiority. I mean, the world does not need another person who looks like that. We don't need that person again. The world doesn't need another person who thinks like that or behaves like that or creates like that. The world needs you. That's what the world needs. You to be uniquely, passionately, and unapologetically you. The world needs you to create a moment. You to create a conversation. You to create a meal, a friendship, a graph, a meeting. You creating a day. That's what the world needs. The world needs us to create lives that only we can create. You see, rather than feeling bad about the bad feelings of fear, comparison, and inferiority, fear, comparison, and inferiority can function as a north star in our lives, pointing us back again and again to our very selves and to the particular lives that we are being called to create today. And through this intentional practice, we would, over time, begin to rework some of those neural pathways that would make it easier and easier and easier for us to return to ourselves more quickly. And best of all, well, settled into the life that we're creating, people are no longer mirrors reflecting our own absence. Instead, they're transformed into artistic expressions that we can enjoy like a painting. Wouldn't that be a beautiful way to think of another person's life? Instead, they're transformed into artistic expressions that we can make haste to visit. And if it's not too awkward, perhaps we could even wrap our arms around the lives of others while kissing their cheek and weeping because a life made, however it is made, is a piece of art to be adored. Wouldn't it be incredible if during this season of Advent, the adoration of others were to grow up inside of us? And when we notice our inability to adore the full lives of others, we sense that as a North Star that brings us back to our very selves, again, to look for, to expect the muse, the messenger, the divine, who has things for each of us to create with our particular lives today. May it be so, and let us pray. Divine love, I pray and ask that you would fill our lives with good, creative work. Especially during the holidays, we tend to look up and to look out, and these feelings of fear or inferiority so often compel us to try and become more, to have more. God, I pray that you would free us from the lives of others to pay attention to the life that is ours. 
North stars saying return to make that which we are created to make. I pray that this season would be filled by much art curated in our own creative lives. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.